Loved was produced by Eleanor Kiffel for the BBC. Game over for IS in Mosul as they demolish the city's ancient mosque. The remote war that's being fought close to home, life for the RAF's Reaper squadrons. And what Afghanistan really meant to Prince Harry. 15, 17 years later, still haven't dealt with it. Afghan was the moment, it was like, right, deal with it. Is the destruction of an ancient mosque in the Iraqi city of Mosul an admission of defeat by IS? Iraqi forces say the Islamist fighters blew up the great mosque of al-Nuri. Aerial photos show the complex is largely destroyed. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General at the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, our BFBS defence analyst. Professor Clark, good to speak to you today. Is this game over then for IS in Mosul? Well, it is as far as the conventional operation is concerned. Um, when, when they've lost this area around uh, the Al-Nuri Mosque, then they've lost the centre of Mosul, they've lost the, the, the building and the complex that they most wanted to defend. But I'm sure that the fighting won't be over because I suspect that there'll be some, uh, as we're guerrilla fighting, some suicide attacks. I don't think Mosul is a safe place yet, and we still don't know what has happened to the about 100,000 people who are in the old city. That will be the next phase. This mosque is where the late IS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi demanded allegiance in his only public appearance following the declaration of a caliphate. Why has IS chosen to destroy it? I think it's an act of spite. Uh, because they do do this, but also I think it's a, it's a symbol of the fact that if they couldn't have it, nobody else could either. And here we are, it's a 12th century mosque, it was begun in 1172. I mean, that means nothing to these characters. Uh, they, they think that they are the beginning of year one. Um, and interestingly, it was on the 29th of, of June uh, 2014, so next week will be the third anniversary of al-Baghdadi standing up there in that mosque and declaring the caliphate. So I think there's a kind of symbolism here all around. It's extremely unfortunate for Iraq and for the heritage of Iraq, um, but there is a kind of an end of story to this now that they've lost the area of the Al-Nuri Mosque. Christopher Lee, why was this mosque so important historically? Well, because it offends. Well, it, it, important historically because of what it represents. I mean, if you, the things, the decrees that have come from that mosque, um, but it also, as far as the IS is concerned, it offends everything that they stand for and fight. And they're not alone in this. You remember what was happening in Nigeria, for example, and also further afield in Timbuktu. Uh, the great libraries at Timbuktu, what happened is that they would attempt to, to destroy all the libraries and to destroy your history uh, and because you become apostate of the whole idea of the pure Islam. And so the destruction, or the attempted destruction, I think is extremely... I think it's extraordinarily important and it's an achievement for IS in as much as, in fact, it wasn't saved. Interestingly, that uh, they immediately said, well, it was the Americans that bombed it. Well, there weren't American flights that day. So, mm. you know, that's how important it is. An achievement for IS, Michael Clark? Uh, no, it's, it's a sign of the... It's an achievement in the sense that they have 
uh, have gone out on a bang, as it were. But of course, this is their defeat in Mosul. And remember that this was the centre of the caliphate, whereas Raqqa in Syria is, in a sense, their operational centre. It's their, the centre of their organisation. But their spiritual centre was always in Mosul. That's why al-Baghdadi made the declaration there just three years ago. And to be kicked out of it, as was always going to be the case, uh, is a severe blow to them. And they're now transforming themselves into a different sort of caliphate, a virtual caliphate that will exist in other parts of the world. Yes, let's not get, we mustn't give an impression, must we, that uh, IS is finished. Um, far from it. Uh, it goes into a different form. And this, in, historically, this is what's happened to every sort of group like uh, whether it's IS or whether it's the the attempts, let's say, early in the 20th century to establish a caliphate in that same area that affected India. So, so where do so, you so think so it'll much. go next, Christopher? Uh, well, we are there in, to some extent. You know, we hear of uh, uh, guys buying a van, knifing a few people by inspiration of IS. IS has got plenty of time and plenty for manoeuvre. The instability of the Middle East, if you like, uh, means that the Middle East is vulnerable and IS has opportunity all the time. And so it, it, is, not, it, is, not a, it is a triumph for what's happened, let's say, in Mosul, and it's taken its time, and it's taken its grisly time with the numbers of people who have been killed. But it is not a success in as much that IS is, is, is taken down. Well, staying in the region, let's talk about Syria and the shooting down of a Syrian government plane by a US Navy aircraft. Michael Clark, Russia has responded angrily to this, saying all coalition aircraft will now be treated as potential targets. Should this change the RAF's operation in any way? Uh, no, because the RAF are doing what they need to do, and the Russians are talking about west of the Euphrates and so on, um, but it may mean that they'll need to defend more carefully some of the I-Star resources that uh, the RAF is using on behalf of the whole coalition. Um, I mean, the, the real message of the of the events of the last week, as far as air defence goes, is that the Americans are getting pulled into the Syrian war in ways they claim that they wouldn't, and that's far more serious, I think, than these these posturings about uh, particular areas of, of operation um, in terms of air, of uh, airspace. I'm really quite worried that the United States policy is just so incoherent that they're getting themselves pulled into the Syrian civil war again. Yeah, the whole idea that you can have, say, let's say, air combat, whether it's uh, bombing or uh, air-to-air uh, combat, but eventually you've got to have the call them advisors, but you've got to have people on the ground that can consolidate what might you have might you have done. Just an interesting thought, though, Mike. I cannot remember too many cases where we've had air-to-air combat and one of the and the other planes being taken out. It seems a thing of the past. Yes, it does. Uh, I mean, aircraft being taken, being destroyed in the air, um, is a is a brutal and instant process. And I was trying to think back to a Korean War for sure, but I mean, since the Korean War, how many times has that happened? Did it happen in well, uh, Gulf One? I don't know. Uh, I think it did actually. Well, I think it it, it happened on a, on a small scale to some Iraqi and Saudi Saudi aircraft attacking Iraqi aircraft. But I also remember, I think the only other case is over Bosnia. Uh, when the Bosnians uh, with Serbs were foolish enough to fly some Galebs, uh, which a couple of them were shot down. So I think they would, they would be the only other time that I can remember. Do you think we'd like to see it again, Professor Michael Clark, over Syria? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think that the, the whole position is getting more tense, and I suspect that there will be more incidents. I don't think they'll bring the Americans and Russians to direct conflict, but the Americans and the Russians are both now playing very serious proxy games with their clients in the Sir Syrian civil war. So I think there will be uh, more, more as it were, semi 
conflictual incidents and there will be a lot more tension yet before anything gets better. All right, Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, thank you very much for your time today. Now, RAF Reaper pilots have been talking about the stress of fighting a remote war thousands of miles away as part of an academic study. Dr Peter Lee from the University of Portsmouth has been given access to members and former members of the two Reaper squadrons who have targeted Islamic State fighters in Iraq and Syria and previously the Taliban in Afghanistan. His findings were given as evidence to the all-party parliamentary group on drones. The squadrons work out of shipping containers at RAF Waddington in Lincolnshire and Creech US Air Force Base in Nevada. Well, Dr Peter Lee joins us now. Good to speak to you today, Dr Lee. What did the airmen tell you? Oh, they gave me a huge breadth of information and shared feelings and experiences. And I think what I submitted to Parliament were really just some preliminary observations from 80 separate interviews that have have taken place uh, over over the last months. Um, in terms of the types of things that they've spoken about, range from you, you mentioned that some of them find it uh, quite difficult, but at the other the other end of that spectrum. Um, Many or most of them find it very professionally fulfilling. It's very demanding. Clearly, there's a lot of reflection goes on about the question of taking life. And uh, the obvious uh, point that most people notice is after conducting these operations, they go home to their family, have dinner with children, see their wives or husbands. And so it's, it's a full range of emotions, experiences, ups, downs, highs, lows, and it's a fascinating community. Did anything actually surprise you in the interviews you conducted? Well, as I was a, a previously an Air Force chaplain, so uh, there's very little that could come out in an interview that would surprise me. Uh, but I think the, the closest, I guess, I came to surprise was perhaps one or two individuals who, who um, on initial discussion seemed very unaffected, said that they were very unaffected by, by what they did, but then actually uh, with, with a bit more... Um, dialogue individuals perhaps would start to 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 see areas of their lives where they were perhaps a bit more affected than they thought if there's one other thing that that intrigued me rather than surprised me is i asked everybody has this affected you all the pilots sensor operators mission intelligence coordinators that's the crew i said um has it surprised uh, sorry i said uh, has it affected you? And by and large, the, the answer was, well, I don't really think it's affected me that much. Some people said, yes, it has, but overall, not so much. But when I asked the spouses and partners, ev 19 of them, every one of the spouses and partners felt that their husband or wife or partner was more affected than they, than they acknowledged. And what kind of impact did you find it was having on their mental health? Um, well, my my research is is not actually primarily um, focused on the the mental health aspect. It's it's a very holistic study for for a book that um, I'm very glad the Air Force gave me access to write. And in terms of the uh, the the mental health bit, because I'm not a psychologist, I'm very cautious about. Uh, in over-interpreting some of my experiences, although I am working with a psychologist in, in, in my analysis. Indeed. Uh, but you did deliver recommendations to the all-party parliamentary group on drones, didn't you, about observing uh, and checking more about the mental health of the people involved? Oh, yes. I think um, 
quite a number of people are, were very happy to to talk about difficulties they were finding some more some more than others and uh, so i don't want to give the impression that everyone was the same um at least half or the majority seemed relatively unaffected relatively unaffected given what they do but when one or two people start breaking down in tears as, as some did uh, then it's clear that that there are some complexities that we're we're not uh, familiar with yet in this new means of war so my recommendation to parliament is not so much to provide men uh, psychological support as if this is a new thing there is already a system um, but my recommendation is to make it compulsory because uh, as i know from being a former chaplain those who experience mental health difficulties in armed forces can wait years or even decades before asking for help when they need it if it was compulsory to meet with a psychologist once or twice a year, then it may reduce the number of instances where people allow their mental health to deteriorate further than it should. And what, what do you think the all-party par parliamentary group on drones can do with your report? I'm not... Actually, I'm... Uh, they have direct access to Parliament, obviously, and, and the, the Defence Secretary, so they, they, they work at that level. But actually... And possibly more importantly, the recommendations that, that went into that report I had um, previously, a, a little while ago, um, given first of all to the Royal Air Force just in, during that whole writing process. And I think that's something that the, the Air Force is looking at. In fact, I've just come straight from a meeting with a couple of people in, in, a, in a headquarters planning office um, who are actively looking at some of these recommendations, at, at how they can improve the lives of of the squadron members and in, and by extension the the family in the wider reaper community so it's already been looked at uh, and we'll see how things develop all right dr peter lee from the university of portsmouth thank you for your time today still to come prince harry on afghanistan mental health and invictus and good news for veterans in need Saudi Arabia's king has appointed his son, Mohammed bin Salman, as crown prince, replacing his nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, as first in line to the throne. Christopher Lee, uh, why is this significant? Um, we start with the age. Uh, we've got King uh, Salman, who's 81, needs to really think, and hasn't been well, needs to really think, and he's been looking at what uh, bin Nayef, uh, Mohammed bin Nayef, uh, has been achieving, which is not a huge amount is being achieving, uh, because right on his tail has been the young uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin meaning that he's, you know, the son of the king. He is a modernist. Uh, he's a detailist. Uh, he's a power grabber. Uh, he grabbed the Ministry of Defence for himself. Uh, he's doing remarkable things with Aramco, which is the oil industry in, in, in Saudi Arabia. And he's 31. And uh, the next stage, he is saying, where shall we be in 2030? Saudi Arabia in 2030. We cannot just carry on doing what we're doing. And so there's been this schism in the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family, where we're talking of thousands of princes, uh, between these two as a result of it. And because the royal family is run on Saudi Arabia, is run by decree. The king can just say, that shall be, and mm. nobody says, no, it shan't be. He's actually said, right, I'm putting the young thruster who is going to be, who is going to take us into the 21st century. 
when we're not quite in the 20th century yet. So, What do you think this means for UK relations with Saudi Arabia and what does it mean for the region? It means a heck of a lot for UK, uh, not just UK, but the United States. The United States has been very keen for this change for some time. Um, and it is... It, you know, there's been things that were happening. For example, uh, Bin Mohammed did actually sort of cut down Al Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, and that was very important. But what, in fact, that the the new uh, heir apparent, uh, well, the new crown prince will do, is concentrate far more on on the other terrorist organisations that are not just there but can be funded. So this is this is back to the that concept. He also has very definite ideas how Saudi Arabia should behave towards uh, towards uh, Iran, Iran, Shiites, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, 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 and they are sort of controlled by a whole different sort of concept of how you, how you run the Middle East. The British very involved in this because they've got big defence contracts, because they've got defence com- uh, complications. They also have got a new naval base, for example, uh, uh, in Bahrain, which is largely funded by the Saudi uh, Saudi Arabians, so it's a very cl- close thing. But the big thing will be the relationship between, I think, uh, uh, I- Iran, and therefore we look for the Syria end of the Syrian conflict before that can be put into place. And this guy is already thinking what happens after Syria. Mm. Interesting times, Christopher. Stay with us. Now there are more than two thousand British military charities, but for service veterans, it can be very difficult to find the one that can actually help. The new Veterans Gateway aims to change that, as Grace Pascoe reports. The transition from military to civilian life comes with a whole host of challenges. And for some of the UK's approximately 2.5 million armed forces veterans, help and support from charities is essential in getting their lives back on track. Alex Askew left the RAF regiment in 2009 after being diagnosed with PTSD. He needed housing and financial support, but had trouble finding the right help. When we got sent to our original temporary accommodation, we didn't have much money. I was working agency work on a minimum wage job, and uh, we got um, we didn't have any furniture or anything. We didn't have enough money to buy anything, and that's where Safa stepped in. They uh, they told us where to go. They told us we'd contact the RAF Benevolent Fund, who were more than happy to to help. They were fantastic. They helped us with furniture. Um, the British Legion helped us with um, certain priority debts that we were struggling with at the time and helped us get them uh, written off and things and um, it kind of helped us get back on our feet. New research commissioned by a group of charities shows a fifth of veterans have been referred to over three charities before they found the organisation that best suited their needs. And with over 2,000 military-focused charities out there, 54% of veterans surveyed were left confused as to which one is right for them. That's where the new Veterans Gateway Service comes in. Defence Minister Tobias Elwood. Many of them make that transition into the civilian world without a problem, but some don't and uh, for no fault of their own, require support. But there are over 2,000 charities there to provide help. So which way do you turn? This gateway uh, allows people a single portal to be able to find that advice, to work out what actually is the best place to go to, because it might be a localised charity or one of the big national ones that we're all familiar with. The Veterans Gateway Service brings together 30 referral partners to ensure ex-service personnel find the right support. 83% of veterans surveyed, including Alex, welcome this new service. It is unfortunate that we have to rely on charities to do this sort of thing, but unfortunately that's all there is out there at the moment. And 
no one should feel ashamed of doing it. At the end of the day, you've served your country, you've earned it, please do go to them if you need it. Veterans can chat live online, call or text the helpline and get the right referral. That was Grace Pascoe reporting. Well, what's it like to be an heir to the throne? Join the army, see active service in Afghanistan and set up a life-changing sporting event all after losing your mum at the age of 12. Prince Harry has revealed how setting up the Invictus Games helped him deal with the problems he'd struggled with since the death of his mother almost 20 years ago. He's spoken exclusively to Forces TV. Well, earlier this week, I spoke to Kath Brazier, who produced the interview, and asked her how it all came about. I think it was sheer persistence on our part. I mean, we've been part of the sort of Invictus movement, which I'm really proud of, um, right from before it even became an idea when we visited the Warrior Games in 2013. So we've had a lot to do with the athletes involved. And then when the Invictus idea came about we just sort of stuck with it went to so many training sessions I can't even tell you I've had more training sessions than hot dinners I think um, and you know again got to know the athletes got to know the faces involved in, in Invictus and they they just eventually went yeah you can have how, an how many times did you have to ask for an I, interview I, again probably more than I've had hot dinners I, <laughs> it wasn't so much asking I just felt we had to be in a position where they felt that we deserved one and that with the forces station we wanted we wanted something unique and um, and that's how it came about. But after all that effort, you didn't actually get to do the interview yourself, did you? It's not about me, Kate. It's not about <laughs> me. And actually, it was Julian Evans, my sports colleague, who came up with the idea, why don't we get Dave Henson to do it? We've seen them together. They're, they've been... A, the pair of them have really come about with Invictus and he's such a good talker. He's David Henson a- who is basically a, a, an amputee and a, a, someone who's competed in the Games. Double amputee was UK team captain in 2014 but that was largely because he'd come up with the idea with Harry. He'd been at the Warrior Games and it had come up with other idea and he's just he's just a real poster boy. He'll hate me saying that but he, he really was you know for 2014 and he's now a GB athlete and a Paralympian so you know he's, his Invictus journey has helped. So what do they talk about? Well mostly Invictus Games that was sort of the overriding conversation because it's so important to them and they started off with talking about what it really means to both of them. We sort of set it up for the uh, for the general public to come and congratulate you guys and to come and support you yeah. but you guys always saw that in reverse going no this is our opportunity to put on a show for, for the general public to say thank you for all the support so you had this amazing moment of where everybody was doing it for everybody else Yeah. Um, and I suppose the point that, that was really quite amazing was that the general public no matter who you were if you've ever come up against any adversity in your life whether you've got a broken back you've had a broken leg you've had just a really bad day flicking on the Invictus games and watching individuals like you guys who've basically been mowing down at at the height of your career to then recover to the point of where you can put on a an amazing sporting display in front of thousands of people that's the inspiration that this country needs and that that everybody needs to to get up off their arse and just say, you know what, I'm not beaten. I'm, I'm unconquerable. Let's do this. Unconquerable. I mean, that's a word that has been bandied around a lot. And uh, the whole sort of perception of injury and perception of military, I think, has changed a lot because of these games. And they actually talked about in in previous sort of chats, they've talked about how a lot of people felt that the Invictus Games in 2014 were going to be a bit Mickey Mouse. But it's become, it was huge. It was huge then, it's still huge. And it's become so much more than a sporting competition. And what did he say about his time in the army? Well, the two of them never actually served together, but um, they both had tours of Afghanistan. And it's very obvious, you know, where what happened to Dave. But I think um, Harry went through his own sort of 
rebirth when he was out there and, and his whole time with the army and his time with the army has given him the credibility to be this, not only is he Prince Harry, but the credibility to deal with wounded veterans and talk to them. He knows the experiences they, they went through. Um, and he talked to Dave briefly about how when they were younger, they felt invincible. And obviously that doesn't last when you go to war. It's drilled into you to, to well, you've got to, you've got to believe that you're invincible. Yeah. Because if you don't believe you're invincible, then you ain't going to get through the, 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 the 12 mile tab or the log run yeah. or anything like that. So you, you end, end up thinking you're invincible, then you go on ops, and, and you, that, that then sort of multiplies by however, however much. And you've got, to, you've got to come to terms with the fact that actually when you leave, you're not invincible, yeah. but use all those tools that the military's given you, yeah. that military family's given you, to, to not only be a better person. In my case, it was like pluck your head out of the sand, deal with, deal with all the stuff that, you, that you've never dealt with, yeah. but use those qualities and those skills and those values and standards, I suppose. Values and standards. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Those, yeah. but that, and that's what, I, that's what I've always loved about the military, and that's what I specifically loved about Afghanistan, was, was it's, you know, the, the, the military was the university of life, and then Afghanistan was the experience of, yeah. of your life. And I've never met anyone now who, who, who can't speak positively of their time in the military. Yes, of, you know, of course, we had, we had bad days, but the, you know, the, the good days far outweigh that. And, the yeah. exp- and, and we were lucky enough to have those experiences and have a yeah. really good time doing it. It's really funny, isn't it, Kath? Because it, it sounds like Dave Henson perhaps asked one question. The floodgates were opened and he never stopped. Well, it, it was actually really funny the way the interview worked because we'd briefed Dave... We'd brief both of them, but we'd been briefing Dave and he, we said, look, you're running this. This is your interview. You know, we want to hear from Harry, but we do want to hear your experiences as well. And in the end, I don't know who thought was interviewing who. Mm-hmm. And it was one of, we sort of came away going, right, I don't envy the person who's going to have to edit this down because it was just 40 minutes of, of well, great, some com- comedy, you know, some stuff we hadn't heard before. Um, but yeah, I wasn't quite sure who was in charge, but in the end, we got, the, we got what we needed. So and on good. a more personal level. Uh, well, I think at the time we did it, it was it was interesting because Harry's now so involved in mental health, um, and it, the Invictus experience has led him there, and it's led him to talk more about his mental health, and it was just fascinating. I mean, you were just watching it, thinking, "Wow, this is I've not heard this before." He's so open about it, and I do think that having Dave do the interview brought that out in him because he didn't have a stranger to talk to or someone he'd met five minutes ago he had Dave and Dave talked about his own coping mechanisms how he's dealt with becoming you know being a, a double amputee and how that's re- how he's redefined himself as an athlete rather than a double amputee and um, Harry had his own coping mechanisms I've always thought you know you, if you can put your name to anything and you've got a following and you've got that belief and you've got that credibility let's say then you can then you can you can make anything happen for the greater good for 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 a wider audience of yeah. people and once i plucked my head out of the sand post afghan so yes it had a huge a huge life changing moment for me as well it's like right you are you are prince harry you can do this as long as you're not a complete tit. Then you're going to be able to get that support because you've got the credibility of 10 years service yeah. and therefore you can really make a difference. And actually going through Invictus and, and speaking to all the guys about their, their issues has been, has really like, like uh, healed me and helped yeah. me. And you know, I've, got, I've got plenty of issues, but most of them, you know, none, of, none of them really relate to Afghanistan, but Afghanistan was the was the thing that triggered everything everything else in the process of which you know if you 
you know, not to get too personal, but if you if you lose your mum at the age of twelve, then you've got to you've got to deal with it. Yeah. And the idea that twenty years later still hadn't really, you know, whatever it was, fifteen, fifteen, seventeen years later, still hadn't dealt with it. Afghan was the moment. It was like, right, deal with it. Was he really happy when it had finished? Because you got a feeling that he got a lot off his chest there and that Possibly. he'd be waiting to say it. I think he was just happy to see Dave. And mm. I've heard them talk before, that's the thing, and I've seen them together before. And I think for him, that's the equivalent of sitting down having a beer with a mate, but he doesn't probably got to do that very much. So he sat on a crash mat at Lee Valley Athletic Centre and, and that's what he did. But yeah, he I've always thought he would be natural and his most natural environment is in the Victus Games. He's honestly in his absolute element. And so I think that's why it worked because he was talking about something he loves with someone that he, he loves probably. In and I guess the beer came afterwards when the cameras were off. Uh, Kath, great to speak to you. Thank you. No worries. And you can see that interview with Prince Harry in full. It's called Prince Harry, My Journey. It's on Forces TV on Saturday at 9pm. Christopher, what do you think we get from this kind of exposure? Um, I think this is quite an individual thing. Um, Let me me give you a thought. Um, Prince Harry is probably going to be the most, if you like, user-friendly member of the royal family for the foreseeable future for all sorts of reasons um, and he's also his ability as a communicator not just as a celebrity I wonder what we've seen today is the beginning of something which will look say 20 years later and wonder to ourselves that being what exactly do you think be the future I suppose I'm speculating the future of this man who is if all goes well is not going to be the you know the, the monarch he was just uh, a down table heir, heir, heir to the monarchy, but he's going to be perhaps one of the most influential people of how we see the monarchy. It's the monarchy coming out, if you like, to the people, not the people being let into the monarchy. It's going to be the, that's going to be the saving of the monarchy over the next 20, 25 years. Well, that is all we have time for today. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sitrap. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online BFBS Sitrap. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport 